Happy holidays, everyone. Just a quick heads up before we start this week's episode. Nicole and I did experience a couple of audio quality issues and had a couple of lags in the content. So just sorry in advance. We did our best. Sometimes technology can be a bit of a struggle. But overall, please enjoy the episode and let's get to it. Hello. And welcome to Mass Murder, a true crime self-care podcast, where your hostesses, Avery and Nicole. And normally we tell you about two different things, masks and murder. But today, since we can't really be together to try out a new mask, which, you know, maybe maybe a little bit poor planning on our part, but I mostly blame COVID. Um, we're going to switch things up a little bit and do a little holiday special. In honor of this time of year, we've decided to bring you 12 holiday murders. Nothing like some crime to get you in the spirit. Full disclosure, though, a lot of this information came straight from thethoughtcatalog.com and crimeandinvestigation.co.uk. And then, of course, we added in our very relevant thoughts as we go along. So with that, let's dive in. The first story we're going to cover, I titled Murder for Christmas, which takes place in Jacksonville, Florida. Of course it does. <laughs> yes, everything in Florida. <laughs> Uh, okay, so the story starts December 6, 2011. A 67 year old Florida woman was found beaten, strangled, and hidden beneath the Christmas presents in her home. The body, uh, the body of Michelle O'Dowd was discovered by her twin brother, Phil Axe, who had gone to check on her at, in her gated community home after she failed to show up for work. Her brother reported that the door was open when he arrived and that Michelle's house had been ransacked. Chairs and tables were turned upside down, but her car and dog were still home. So obviously they didn't take everything, right? But then he noticed a foot sticking out of the big pile of Christmas gifts under her tree. Buried beneath those gifts was his sister's cold body, her bloody face covered with a towel, which in you know, my mind, showing some level of remorse. So maybe the person knew her. I feel like they had to, like they're, there was no sign of forced entry. It's a gated community, so it's supposedly relatively safer. Exactly. And, like, you need you need certain ways, like, either you have to have your own access key to get in or somebody has to buzz you in. So. Totally agree. And that's what police yeah. thought as well. They started to search for Patty Michelle White, age 40, who was an ex-girlfriend of the victim's nephew and considered a close family friend. Michelle had let Patty stay at her home for a month for free while she was, you know, just down on hard times. The family said that Michelle treated Patty as part of the family, giving her odd jobs to earn a little extra money, even though, quote, she just couldn't keep a job, couldn't get her life together. She trusted Patty with her debit card pin number, even asking her to go get some groceries for the two of them. Although authorities did later say that Patty used that card to withdraw $1,000 at two different ATMs in Florida. So obviously not but so trustworthy. Hmm. So was it $1,000 in total or $1,000 from each ATM? Uh, I think $1,000 in total. Yeah. Okay. Which is still a lot of money. Yeah. But I mean, it'll only last you so True. long. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to go with that she hit the maximums on how much you could withdraw. Yes. Oh, probably. Just a total assumption, but... So the police surmised that Patty had returned to Florida to rob Michelle after staying with her relatives in South Carolina. According to the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office, quote, whatever took place in that apartment went horribly wrong and she ended up beating and killing her, end quote. 
Patty had casually returned to South Carolina, but with a stroke of luck, was pulled over and arrested when she then confessed to authorities. Michelle was known to friends and family as Aunt Mickey and was the, quote, most sweetest, kindest person who would never hurt a fly. One of the sadder points to me, Mm -hmm. though, of this entire story is that neighbors later reported hearing screams. What? And nobody, like, went to check on her or, like, called police or anything? No one called police. I know. It's crazy. You would think, especially in a gated community, people would be on high alert, like, even if it's just for you and yourself. Yeah, and you would think that there would be more of a sense of community. Like, you would know your neighbors better. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, rather than, like, here in suburbia where it's just house after house. It's You're all in this, like, secure community. I don't know. I'm with you. It's really messed up, but that's what happened, unfortunately. I mean, who knows how long this fight took. I mean, even if someone had reported it, like, nothing could have been done. Like, it's possible. Nothing could have been done to save her, but there is always that chance. But so the family members said that uh, Patty was part of the family and they couldn't even begin to comprehend what had transpired. They were sickened that she would bury the body beneath the gifts that were meant for the children and grandchildren under the Christmas tree that Michelle had taken so much pride in. Christmas was her favorite holiday and she put a ton of time and effort into decorating for it. But at the end of the day, Patty was sentenced to 45 years in prison. Ugh. Yeah. That's, that's awful. And also, like, yeah, I, I can't even understand the hiding her body under Christmas presents. Like, a blanket? Yeah, perhaps? it's... It, what, leaving the body in the house, it's like there's no attempt to try to, like, hide what you did or, you know, evade police. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So it's... Very yeah, and it doesn't sound like she even tried to like fight them on it. She pretty much just fessed, like just fessed right on up. Yeah, it was yeah. me. I did it. So yes, story one down. <laughs> it's very interesting. Ah, uh, well, for our second story, let's go overseas to Victoria, Australia. I've titled this one "Christmas Day Kill Bill Plot." carried out in victoria Which, australia fact, i literally just watched kill bill last oh week. i've never seen I've it i watched it like forever ago but i knew it wasn't really ex- what i would call my thing but i watched it with rich mm-hmm. last week and it is violent so if that has anything to do with the story oh well, i've never seen it so i had nothing to go <laughs> we'll on <find> out. <laughs> this sounds good so our story is centered around William, a.k.a. Bill Stevenson, who was a hardworking, fit, and kind man. He was very loved by his family, and his brother Andrew said, quote, he tried to be a nice person and got tied up with the wrong person. It turns out that Bill was struggling with a drug addiction to meth, a.k.a. ice, which is apparently the street name for it in Australia. I don't, I was like, I was gonna say, I don't know if it's called that here, because I don't know a lot about drugs, but I feel like with this story, this is the first time I've ever heard yeah, of Yeah, ditto. Ice. I have no idea, but I haven't heard ice before either. Oh, okay. Cool. Um, so he had actually spent some time living with a woman named Danielle Kerr. And on Christmas of 2013, Bill um, had just gotten off work. And Danielle and their friend, Darren Lewis, picked Bill up from work. And they drove out to the bushland. <laughs> the bush. <laughs> 
I'm sorry. Uh, no. And I'm assuming that like they were picking him up and the plan was to like go smoke ice or whatever, however you do drugs. Um, and so when they got to the bush, Danielle started by started things off by hitting Bill in the head with a large rock. As Bill was understandably like um, bewildered, he started stag- staggering back towards the car. And Danielle went and got a hunting knife out of the vehicle and started to taunt Bill and stab him, telling telling him, like, I'm going to kill you and stabbing him. Okay. But wait, there's more. So at this point, Bill is begging for his life and Danielle picks up a nearby tree branch and starts whacking him with it. She was just yelling, die, die. Okay. Sure. Sure. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't until the earlier part of 2014 that Bill's partial remains were found in the trunk of a car. Uh, later, Darren, the friend that was with them, reported that he and Danielle were doing ice earlier that year when she told him she wanted to know what it was like to kill a person. And then they started talking about the movie Kill Bill. And started to hatch their plan to literally kill oh my God, their wait, friend Bill. Do you think that that's it's really that plain that they wanted? She wanted to try to kill someone, and the name kill like his name was Bill, so it's obviously got to be him. Nothing to do with him. Yes. <gasps> yeah, that's there's yeah that's literally the only like reason for the murder that was ever given was that explanation oh by Darren. Okay. So Darren and Danielle were both arrested. They had separate trials. And during his trial, Darren gave testimony about what happened that was able to be corroborated by evidence. And he was only sentenced to 10 years in prison. Whereas Danielle, during her trial, she did plead guilty, but she showed no remorse in court and was sentenced to 21 years with a minimum of 16 years and six months with no parole. Wow. Only 21 years for that? Right. I think that was the maximum. Australia's rules are weird. Oh, actually, actually, I read in an article that the maximum would have been 23 if she hadn't pled guilty. That's not much at all. Right? (laughs) She brutally murdered someone. Also, this is just, this is neither here nor there, but uh, why they took him out to the bush and then put him back into the trunk. Why don't you leave him there? Yeah. And I couldn't find any. Yeah. Because, you know, the dingoes would do the do the cleanup for you. Yeah. I couldn't find anything about where the car was found. Just that he was found in the trunk and it was like partial remains. Hmm. But you also have to remember. These people were drug addicts. Yeah. I mean, obviously not in their right mind. Even logically just makes no sense. Like. There, yeah. There's not even anger there. Like, there's what what fueled that fire? Nothing. Curiosity. Wow. Yes. Okay. Well, let's keep going on this whole group of people <laughs> murdering other people. Um, story number three. Okay. I titled "Teen Gangs Goes on a Festive Killing Spree." <laughs> it's just I'm sorry. I, I'm laughing at myself. Okay. A festive, a festive killing, spree. killing spree. So. There better be tinsel. I'm sorry to let you down already. 
Uh, no decorations included. Then how is it festive? Well, it's just the timing. So all of this occurred between Christmas Eve and Boxing Day in 1992. So it's just literally the holiday. But so yes. during this time, four kids went on a murder spree in Dayton, Ohio, which would later be classified as the Christmas Killings. So this group, which they called themselves the Downtown Posse. We'll pause for that, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that's no, not even not. a cool nickname. But it's fun. Like, I'm all about naming your group of friends, but, like, come up with something clever. Oh, they liked it. And, you know, to each their own. But so it's, it also probably has something to do with their age. So it was made up of Laura Taylor, who's 16, Demarcus Smith, 17, Heather Matthews, 20, and Marvelous Keen, who was 19. The group was actually, le- like, the ringleader was Marvelous. I'm sorry, what? Yes. Marvelous. Okay. Do you know if Marvelous was a I boy do. Or a I would girl? like to know what your guess is. Okay. I'm, well, I'm going to guess that marvelous is a boy why do you think that just numerically two (laughs) girls two boys (laughs) just trying to make it even literally literally my only so you're right marvelous is a guy (laughs) marvelous is a guy which shocked me because i've never heard of well i've never heard of a marvelous anyways but i just assumed it would be a woman but i was wrong it's a guy but so actually uh-huh okay yeah. With a name like that, how are you? That's not? true. Natural born leader. leader. That's Absolutely. what his parents were thinking. So their primary motive was robbery, but that didn't last for long. They worked with three other young co-conspirators, which Marvelous at some point got a little concerned that they would snitch on him. So, I mean, what else is he supposed to do but probably murder all three? So his first kills were Joseph Wilkerson, age 34, uh, Danita Gillette, 18, and Sarah Abram, 38. I'm sorry. What are these old-ass 30-year-olds doing hanging out with teenagers? More to this story. And I didn't look that far into it. So, I mean, there's probably, (laughs) yes, some drugs involved. And then perhaps... I was going to say, let's just assume the 30-year-olds are drug dealers. And then also, if they're continually robbing different places like you probably just have to know a lot of people to help you get the information you need also it's Dayton Ohio so yeah I'm gonna go with drugs again but yeah anywho uh Marvelous also was involved in silencing two acquaintances who he just thought knew too much uh Wendy Cottrell was 16 and Marvin Washington was 18 Washington was actually shot by Demarcus Smith one of the other four or the other three in the gang um, but obviously mm-hmm. the ringleader knows all. He Absolutely. probably told and him then, to do it. Especially this one. Marvelous's girlfriend, Laura Taylor, who was uh, still in the group as well, uh, killed these six and final victim, who was Richmond Maddox, who was 19. So, I mean, they're just like offing people left and right. Again, I'm going to lean on the drug idea because they're really paranoid all of a sudden just murdering a bunch yeah. of people. Uh, I did read and uh, like a little blurb, but just because we, you know, we weren't doing a ton of research on this, I didn't look farther into it. But I did see something that they had killed a random person who was just using a phone on the street, like it wasn't a phone booth. But um, I didn't oh. get any more clarification on that. And then when I read another article, uh, it didn't mention that at all. So that may be 
maybe I don't know that's one of these people they just happened to kill them while they were in a phone booth not sure so okay the craziness continues I'm sure but so let's just go ahead and skip right on down to their sentencings uh sentencings since Laura and Demarcus were both juveniles at the time of all the killings they were ineligible for the death penalty Heather was indicted on two capital murder charges, but granted a plea deal agreement in exchange for her testimony against both Marvelous and Laura. So Laura, Heather, and Demarcus are all still serving time with life sentences. But Marvelous was actually the 10,000th American convict to be executed since the death penalty was reinstated back in 76 because of his central role in the Christmas killings. I don't know. That's bananas. I I should just read more on that story. There's a lot of context missing, but still insane. Yeah. I feel like we could do an entire episode on that. (laughs) Highlight it. Nicole approves. (laughs) I get (laughs) approved. I know. I feel like several of these could be full episodes. Yeah. Yeah. Like a couple of mine. Like, I was like, I want to know more, but you know, like you said, we weren't doing yeah, a shit ton of research. So the starting off point for some new ideas for next year. Mm-hmm. True, good point. All right, so we'll just keep rolling, but we're going to get away from group killings. Our fourth story is about a missing Bristol blonde and the hunt for her killer. <laughs> It was only a matter of time. It was only a matter of time. So, Joanna Yeats was a 25-year-old landscape architect who lived with her partner in a flat in Bristol. And on December 17th of 2010, she went out for some drinks with colleagues. You know, I'm assuming after the workday is over, hey, let's go. Let's go to happy hour. Let's go to the pub. Let's grab a drink. Whatever. As you do, oh, or as you used to do, pre-COVID, <laughs> back in 2010. The only difference is, on December 17th, Joanna never returned home. And uh, because she was a young, attractive, blonde woman, her disappearance was quickly picked up by the media and was soon dominating the news. Her family was desperate to get her back, uh, especially, hopefully, before Christmas, So they took to social media and asked for the public's help. Unfortunately, on Christmas Day, her body was found in the snow just three miles from her home. All this hurt my soul. That's awful. I know. I know. Yeah. Um, An autopsy did determine that the cause of her death was strangulation. And the first suspect in Joanna's killing was actually her landlord, who is described as an eccentric man named Christopher Jeffries, who actually lived in the same building as Joanna and her partner. So it's like a big, like, apartment complex. And he was, like, the landlord, but also lived in the building, which is actually pretty common. Fun fact. The media vilified him. He was instantly labeled as a murderer, and the media just ran with it. Later, two media outlets, The Mirror and The Sun, were found guilty of contempt of court for their coverage. They had reported information that could have prejudiced could a that trial. Against a news outlet. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, in cool. the UK you can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Um, in early January, the BBC show Crime Watch was working on a reconstruction of the case to try and actually find, figure out what happened to Joanna, who killed her. Everything, literally from the weather to her movements, were reconstructed. They brought in, like, a special company to recreate the amount and condition of the snow, which is just, like, yeah, like they, they're really going okay. for it. However... Christopher Jeffries, the landlord, was vindicated of all of the suspicion when another one of Joanna's neighbors, a Dutchman named Vincent Tabak, was arrested and charged with her murder. And after his arrest, Crime Watch canceled the planned airing of the reenactment, which was, I think, supposed to air on, like, the 25th of January. But I'm assuming, just based on this, like, we don't know what led to him being charged with the murder. Interesting. Mm-mm. No. And I, this was not my favorite of all of the ones that I looked at, uh, so I no. didn't dive too it's deep totally into fine. it. It's totally fine. It's just interesting that it just all of a sudden shifts. Yeah. But again, short blurbs. That's what yeah. we're here for. Little nuggets. Yep. Quick quick and easy. Tell me <laughs> She's fine. How's She's Abby? asleep under my desk <laughs> right now. Mm-hmm. Nice. Okay. All right, well, let's move along. And Nicole, I saw you highlight that. So if you come up with some interesting tidbits, let me know. Oh, I was, okay. Yeah, I was just going to um, look him up and see what his, um, like, his sentencing was or, like, how they found okay. him. I could wait, or I can talk, and then we can talk about so. yours afterwards. My, this one's short. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's because this one's so obvious, no one needs to hear the details. That Joanna disappeared, and that's why they started looking into him. And, well, (laughs) all right. right. You go ahead. Okay. And if we need to, we'll come back. So the fifth story I titled The Infamous Child Beauty Queen Murder of Boulder, Colorado. I'm going to go with you already know what this is. Exactly. John Benet. So that's why this one's short. Because we've all heard Uh, of this. Or. Because. Yes. Or we should. Everyone knows it. Oh, and I'm sure we're going to have to, we're also going to have oh, to discuss okay. our All right, our I'll series. try to get my thoughts out of this then. All right, so. <laughs> well, you can, you're the one telling the story. Okay. All right, so. Put your thoughts in it. In case anyone has not heard, um, 1996, John Benet Ramsey was murdered sometime between Christmas Day and Boxing Day. The police actually couldn't really ascertain the precise date, so well, close enough. Um, it has now been over two decades, and the six-year-old beauty queen's killer has still not been ID'd. So in case you actually don't know the details of this and like we were kind of mentioning before, like where in the world have you been? There was a, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, this under is a probably rock. one of the most popular <laughs> true crime stories ever. But um, highlights were there was a handwritten ransom note found in the Ramsey home. Her father, John, later found her body in the basement of their house only seven hours after she had been reported missing. John Bonet had sustained a broken skull from a blow to the head and had been strangled. So this is all very choppy, of course, but there's so many unusual aspects to it that this case has led to true crime buffs all over the world studying and becoming completely obsessed with what happened to this girl because the story is, I guess, um, apparently she was killed during a botched kidnapping. So again, people have very different opinions on what happened here but a lot of people accuse John Benet's parents of the murder others look at her brother which 
if it's her brother probably also has to do with her parents uh there are suspicions of a stalker or a possible child molester as the culprit and to be honest most people in boulder went under suspicion at some point one of the area suspects was actually bill mcreynolds a local man hired by the ramses to play santa claus at a christmas party they held at their house that year he died back in 2002 swearing his innocence but to be honest there have been countless documentaries, movies, books, articles written pointing fingers every which way, but the mystery's never been solved. And so my personal opinion, and I, I definitely have not read everything about this, but I know enough to have a thought process. I think that it makes the most sense that it was her brother. <laughs> yeah, I think her brother I'm with did you. it I think Brooke and her did parents it. covered it up because also your daughter's mm-hmm. missing and yet didn't find her in the basement. You didn't check your whole house before you called the police. Like, yeah. what is wrong with you? That just, it makes no sense. Like, that one fact makes no sense. So. Yeah. That's it's, my thought. Yeah. No, it's just. No, I'm, I, it, I'm with you. It makes the most sense. It. Yeah. That's. <laughs> and Boom. Done. We solved it. <laughs> and it's done. Um. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go back to my story mm-hmm. real quick. Vincent Tabak, he actually, he was the one that tried to shift suspicion onto the landlord. He, like, told police that um, the landlord had used his car the night. So, and then, so, the neighbor that actually did it, Vincent, he um, was reported to, like, look up different escort agencies while he was traveling for business and he Mm. watched a lot of violent porn that showed images of women being like bound and gagged and held by the neck and choked and they found images of a woman who looked a lot like joanna in his um his flat or his apartment or whatever that looked a lot like joanna in one of the pictures that they found of this woman who looked like her, she was shown pulling up a pink top to expose her mm-hmm. bra and breasts. And when Joanna was discovered, she was wearing a similarly arranged oh, pink top. Uh, Very creepy. Um, so he was arrested and he um, was taken to trial. He pled guilty to manslaughter, but denied murder. Um, the jury deliberated and he was um, jailed for life with okay. a minimum term of 20 years. Wow. Yes. Okay. You found a lot of details. Yes. Good for you. Yes. Okay. So, All right. I, I understand that. why he was arrested. <laughs> that makes sense. Yes. Yes. That was a nice You're little so quick speedy. Wikipedia search. <laughs> this is the story of 37 year old Melissa Young of Edinburgh who brutally stabbed and murdered her neighbor, Alan Williamson, on Christmas of 2013. When police arrived at Melissa's flat, they found her covered in blood, and she promptly told them, the power it gave me was amazing. Creepy. Okay. Yeah, that's just how I envision her saying it. Sure. Um, A toxicology report revealed that blood taken after her arrest showed traces of four different drugs, and Melissa was also later found to be over the drink drive limit, which is a cute way to say that. (laughs) That is a cute way to say it, but also, like, what kind of cocktail of drugs did she make? Four drugs? 
four drugs. They mm. didn't tell me what it was. I wonder if it was even just like she took one thing and it was laced with three other things, or if it was really four. Because because that does happen sometimes. I happen. I do not know. Mm. But fun little tidbit. A doctor told the court that she was liable to, quote, violent and dangerous outbursts, end quote, was on 14 prescription drugs. Oh, my Lord. Inhaled solvents daily, drank to excess, and had smoked heroin the morning before the murder. Oh, well, that's your four drugs. I'm surprised she didn't have 20. Right. I don't know, maybe the prescription drugs didn't show up because they were prescribed to her. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. It also came out during the trial that she had previously abducted and assaulted her victim, Alan, earlier that year. She abducted them and she was... Yes. She, <laughs> she falsely accused him of stealing her house keys and then confined him against his will in her apartment and brandished a knife at him. Sure. Obviously. Yeah, obviously, like, this stressed him out, and he was so worried for his safety that he jumped from the first floor balcony into the garden below. I mean, yeah, I would, too. Right? Also, how do you not move after that? Yeah, I would have a restraining order. I would have changed mm. my address. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. A thousand percent. So, during the attack on Christmas, Alan sustained... sustained 29 injuries from multiple stab wounds, 12 to the left side of his chest, 12 to his upper limbs, and 5 to his lower limbs, and they were all inflicted by a kitchen knife with a 6-inch blade. Wow. Okay. Ouch. Uh, So, Melissa actually tried to blame Alan for his own murder by saying that the, quote, cruel and wicked attack was provoked by him not liking the Christmas presents that she had given him. Which is why I asked you at the beginning. Sure, yeah. This sounds very logical. Yeah. Do you want to know what she gave him? (laughs) Yes, I would love to. A pair of unisex trainers and a copy of the newspaper The Sun's slightly raunchy 2014 calendar. (laughs) Yes. So that's enough to murder over. I'm just wondering what his actual reaction was. If he was just not enthusiastic enough. I feel like for something like that, you would just like be like bewildered. Like, uh, thank you for this raunchy calendar. Right. Oh man. That's insane. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. So, So obviously she was arrested and went to trial. At the trial, she did plead guilty, but she also claimed that her mental health issues were the reason behind her attack. Mm -hmm, Sure. Yes. She um, was sentenced in 2014 and must serve at least 20 years before being considered for parole. And ever since she was imprisoned, she's seriously assaulted two prison officers. Okay. All right. So she has huge anger-mental illness problems. Dash aggression, yes. yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully yeah. they never let her out or Agreed. keep her hospitalized or something. Yes, she definitely needs to be in a mental health facility. Wow. That is aggressive. Yeah, in my opinion. Not that I'm like a doctor or anything. <laughs> what? Oh, 
Yeah, you know. Forgot to tell you that medical degree I showed you earlier. Yeah. Fake. Yes. So. All right. What did the seventh murder of Christmas bring us? So my seventh story I titled A Christmas Rampage, which occurred in Russellville, Arkansas. Okay. Yeah. All right. So buckle up. On December 28th, 1987, Ronald Gene Simmons walked into a law firm in Russellville, Arkansas, and shot the receptionist that he was infatuated with, but just who had not reciprocated his feelings. Oh my god, but why? Right? He's just crazy. I mean, just none of that makes any sense. And then he continued, or I guess continuing on, he went to the office of an oil company, shooting two executives, killing one and injuring the other. And then he drove to a convenience store that he used to work at and shot two more people. Luckily, both would survive. And then finally, he went to Woodline Motor Freight Company, shooting and wounding a woman. Yep, just a, just a long line. Of... That's a, quite a few different locations. Yes, I again, you know, like since we didn't do a ton of research into it, I would like to know why all of those places. Um, yeah like what's the connection to the oil company and the freight company yeah but the only thing i can think of is that he maybe like worked at all of them in some form or another like the oil company Mm -hmm. that he shot to executives maybe they used to be in charge of the contract he was working on or something oh yeah or like he blamed them for him being fired or him no longer working yeah but yes he just went off and just shot a bunch of people at a bunch of different locations and no one caught him which is you know interesting but so yes. after he was done, at least he calmed down a little. He just sat down and waited for police to arrest him. But this killing spree was merely a portion of what Ronald had done. Six days prior, he had shot and strangled his wife, two sons, and four daughters. What? Yeah. Which even that's not as straightforward as you think. One of the daughters in that count had been sexually abused by him. So another one of his daughters was, in fact, the child he fathered with the other daughter. Mm. Yes, exactly. But let's just keep going with this. You think that's the end, but it isn't the end of the weirdness. After murdering his entire family, Ronald sat in his house among the bodies for four days, only leaving to go to a bar. No. Isn't it weird? Yeah, it, it's like, are you sitting there because you're in denial of what you've done because you're, like, reminiscing about it? Like, there's so many possibilities of why he just sat there. Well, I can definitely say he didn't feel bad because on Boxing Day, nine of his relatives turned up to visit the family for, you know, the holidays, including his grandchildren, and all of them were killed. The fuck? So, in total, he took 16 lives that Christmas right isn't it nuts so on that june 25th of 1990 at the time arkansas governor bill clinton signed his execution warrant and simmons was killed by lethal injection thank you bill clinton right i was just this is a story i've that, never heard of and i don't know how that is bananas yes yeah. so, i think that's another one that could be a full yeah, episode the psychology around all of those is just there's so many things there. Right? Oh, my God. I just need to know more. Know. Uh, no. Speaking of... Uh, yeah, go ahead. As I was going to say, speaking of needing to know more, wait till you hear my next story. Well, let's get to it. Let's just rip right into it. 
This one, I did not change the title of because the article we got it from was just too, it was too perfect. Twas the night before Christmas and fire tore through the house. Yes, that is perfect. Yes. And this is another one that, like I said, it could be its own episode. It's bananas. So it's Christmas Eve of 1945 in the city of Fayetteville, West Virginia. And we are visiting. We're not visiting. We're going to discuss <laughs> <laughs> the story of the Sodder family, which was made up of parents, George and Jenny, plus their nine children. The family celebrated a little bit early, and some of the younger kids were given presents by their older sister. Uh, the mom, Jenny, told the kids that they could stay up past their bedtime to play with their new toys and, you know, just have some early Christmas mm-hmm. fun. Uh, so that night, everybody goes to bed, you know, later than usual, whatever. And at about 1 a.m., Jenny wakes up to the sound of something hitting the house with a loud bang and then a rolling noise. She waited a few minutes but didn't hear anything else, so she just went back to sleep. Uh, About a half hour later, she woke up again, this time to the smell of smoke. George, Jenny, and four of the children escaped the burning home. Oh, my gosh. Mm -hmm. Attempts to wake up the other five children and get them outside to safety were futile. The family was forced to watch the house burn to the ground while they waited for the fire department to arrive and tend to the fire. That's awful. Yeah, there's and there's actually a lot of conspiracy behind the fire itself, and it's you know it's just different versions of like oh well it was started by like people trying to send a message to the Sauter family, or people trying to you know there's a, there's just a bunch of different conspiracy theories behind uh-huh. it. Um, when the fire department came and searched the house, they found no trace of bones or other human remains. It seems like the missing five children disappeared into thin air. There's no trace. There's no evidence that they died. There's no evidence that they escaped. There's nothing. Um, Do you think it was aliens? The aliens did it. What? That's insane. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The Satters turned the site of their burned down house into a memorial garden for the missing children and spent the rest of their lives trying to figure out what happened. Unfortunately, they died later in life without ever finding out what happened to the rest of their children. Oh, that's awful. Yes. So that's like one of those like unsolved what happened. And I also saw some like I saw conspiracies. The actual search of the home after the fire department put the fire out that it was that they just did a cursory search. They weren't actually looking for bones or evidence of human remains. So that it was just like a lackluster search. I just there. I feel like you could dive down like several rabbit holes. Yeah, on that so one. many possibilities. So many people. Yes. So I kept that one as short as I to could because more. Um, yeah, lighthearted is the strong word for any murder story, but um, <laughs> we'll call it kind of like a plot for a movie. Yes. Right, so this one, story nine. I called the infamous family photograph. Okay. Uh, actually, you know what? No, no, this is a different one than I thought it was. It is not like a plot for a movie. <laughs> That's actually what I did when I started talk- telling that story. I thought I was telling a different one. And I was like, this is not the story this I thought different. it was. This is actually also <laughs> a sad family story. <laughs> right, Lovely. Tell me more. 
Okay. Lovely. Right, Make so me depressed. Story number nine is what I titled the infamous family photograph of Germantown, North Carolina. A few days before Christmas, 43-year-old Charles Davis Lawson, who was a tobacco farmer, took his family shopping for new outfits and to have a professional family photograph taken, which is not a normal occurrence for someone of his social standing or financial means. Some even called it peculiar. So let's fast forward to the afternoon of Christmas Day. The fate for all but one of the Lawsons was very grim. Charles waited by the barn for his two daughters, Carrie, 12, and Mabel, 7, as they headed out to their aunt-uncles. He saw them walk out and then shot them both with a 12-gauge shotgun, then proceeded to bludgeon them until they were unrecognizable. Are you kidding me? Stalking his daughters and then brutally murdering them. But it gets even worse. So he moves the bodies into the barn, so of course no one sees. Then he walked towards uh, the house. He shot his wife, Fr- ooh, I almost called her Franny, shot his wife Fanny, who was <laughs> age 37, just sitting on the porch. Hearing the shotgun, his sons James, age 4, and Raymond, 2, tried to seek refuge and escape by hiding from him. But while mm-hmm. going into the house, Charles ran across his daughter Marie, who was 17 first, shooting her and then found both boys and shot them. Yeah. Poor babies. Why, what did the two and four-year-old oh. do to deserve that? Oh, it gets worse. Saving the most defenseless for last, he bludgeoned his four-month-old infant baby girl, Mary Lou, to death. Oh. Yeah. I just oh, I just got, like, sad yeah. chills. No. So I've, I've heard the story before. I didn't actually know all of the details. Um. And again, like, of yeah. course, we didn't do all of it. But yes, I've heard this one. And this one is fucked. <laughs> I didn't real other way to say that. that. That's really the only yeah. way to say it. But so Charles, being the godly man that he was, he went back, found all of the bodies of each family member, pl- placed a rock beneath each of their heads and crossed their arms. After he was done, he walked into the woods and killed himself because he sucks. Real coward. Yes. Can't face anything. But so the interesting part is that his oldest boy, 16-year-old Arthur, was the only survivor. He had been sent to town by his father to run a completely random errand. So no one really knows why Charles decided to spare his son. I mean, my speculation is the fact that it's the oldest boy in the family to, like, keep the name going. You know, the narcissist in him didn't want the family to completely end. Seriously? Oh my god, what a piece of shit. But so the the crazy thing is, to this day, no one has any idea why he actually did this. It's been speculated by relatives of the family, which actually stemmed from concerns that Fanny, his wife, had, that Charles had been carrying on an incestuous relationship with his daughter, Marie. So... That's with all these parents wanting to rape their daughters. Maybe there was something going on with that. Maybe that's what led to the entire massacre, but... I mean, honestly, we'll just never know. That's, and that's so sad. Yeah, it's crazy. I can't imagine what leads anyone to want to do that, but like especially to your family and also in such a brutal way. I mean, there's so many stories of people killing their kids. They're normally a little yeah. more decent <sighs> than that. Whereas this guy just decided he had to bludgeon uh-huh. them all nearly beyond recognition. That makes no sense to me. No. No. But well, yeah. No, it's it's awful. Ugh. Well, I would like to say it gets better, but this one 
cool is also bad this one i titled the real nightmare before christmas because it does have some halloweeny aspects to it and takes place around christmas 10 years ago in 2010 christy bamu i think is how you say it and his siblings left their home in Paris to go visit their sister, Magalie, and her boyfriend, Eric Bikubi, in Newham, East London. Upon their arrival, Eric accused the children of bringing kindoki, or witchcraft, into as the home. As you do. Yeah, as you do. The visiting siblings were all beaten by Eric... But two of Christie's sisters, who were ages 11 and 20, managed to escape more beatings by, quote-unquote, confessing to being witches. Yeah. Um, Eric and Magalie singled Christie out because he had wet his pants. And then the two sisters that confessed to being witches were forced to join in on the torture, which lasted for four days. The older of the two sisters, the one that was 20 at the time, her name was Kelly, and she remembered that they looked to their sister Magalie for help, but instead of helping them, she just egged on her boyfriend and encouraged oh his God. behavior. What is up with these couples? Couple killers are the worst. Right? They are. So the pair continued to beat Christy until he also confessed to being a witch, but unlike his sisters, this did not make the beating stop um the girls remembered that at one point during the whole ordeal eric encouraged the kids to jump out of a window to see if they could fly and when um the couple was later arrested and went on trial it was revealed that christy had been tortured with knives sticks metal bars ceramic floor tiles bottles and a oh hammer God, and chisel. That is... mm-hmm. um, Eric and Magalie also used a pair of pliers oh to twist his ear, which is so, like, makes my ears uh, hurt. Mm, yeah. Okay. That's mm-hmm. not normal. No. Um, when Christie's body was found, he had more than 130 separate injuries. The sister, Kelly that I mentioned earlier is quoted in a BBC article saying Christie asked for forgiveness. He asked again and again, Magalie did absolutely nothing. She didn't give a damn. She said, we deserved it. Yeah. Like they're supposed to be going to like, see this sibling who's supposed to love them and care yeah, for them. Just a little holiday. Yeah. Christie's ultimate cause of death was drowning when he was put into a bath for a, ritual cleansing Mm -hmm. so to me it sounds more like the sister and her boyfriend were witches Uh, not that the kids were witches it's your sibling you know you do that yeah so they were sentenced to life in prison um and eric was ordered to serve at least 30 years of his sentence and magalie was required to serve at least 20 every day of their stupid lives yes that's Awful. Yes. All right, we're not looking into that story because that sounds horrific. No. Yeah, no, I wow. don't want to know okay. more than I already you know. What? Let's just glaze over that. <laughs> that one's way worse than all of the others. Something about torture. I just, I just can't. Yeah. Yeah. Especially the torture of a child. All right. So let's just move straight on forward. Uh, 
my next story, story 11, is what is what I titled, Stagger Lee Inspires a Sing-Along. And yes, it is slightly more lighthearted than yours. <laughs> I mean, of course, it has murder okay. in it, but it is the inspiration of, like, a lot of movies, if you ask me. All right, so let's just get okay. into it. So our main character is Lee Shelton. He was a carriage driver in St. Louis, Missouri, who was known as a criminal and a pimp, which that just makes me happy. I don't know why, but as a pimp. Um, and he went by the nickname. <laughs> exactly. P-I-M-P. He went by the nickname Stagger Lee, which I actually, just while I was looking up a couple of these details, um, they said that he was nicknamed Stagger because uh, he was like a lone wolf. So he was always going stag. Yes. So. Oh, interesting. I, I see stagger and think swagger and no, but that's not why. No, yeah. that's actually exactly Especially what my head went, So exactly. So this story okay. is famous because it inspired a folk song called Stago Lee, which was first recorded in 1923, but ended up making the Billboard Hot 100 in 1959 when sung by Lloyd Price. Said the story is on Christmas night, 1895. Stagger and his friend William Lines, uh, who went by Billy, were drinking and playing cards together in the Bill Curtis Saloon, where they, of course, got into a dispute. Both had been drinking and feeling good when the discussion then drifted to politics, and then they got into the argument. In the end, Billy snatched Stagger's hat from his head. When he demanded its return, Billy refused. So what else is a man to do? but pull out your revolver and shoot Billy in the abdomen. So when he should do (laughs) right. Yes. That's how I would react. There's a lot of um, (laughs) stories about just really overreacting. (laughs) It's a lot of the, it's the theme of a lot of these, but so when Billy fell to the floor, obviously wounded from the shot, Stagger took the hat right out of his hand and just kind of walked away. He was quickly arrested and locked up at the Chestnut street station. Billy eventually died from his injuries. During the trial, it was discovered that Stagger had started, or the whole conversation had started by Stagger crushing Billy's hat in anger, which led to Billy snatching the hat off his head. So, you know, just like being really manly and stuff and having a real conversation. But then, but then Stagger drew his gun and then smacked (laughs) Billy on the head with it. So, he, Billy then lunged for the gun and out of like as a reflex Stagger shot him so at least that's kind of like showcasing more progression <laughs> like each thing sounds a little more intense than the last I... <laughs> yeah but to me I think they're just that's 100% like children what... uh, Stagger was convicted of the crime in 1897 and sentenced to 25 years in prison he was actually paroled in 1909, but was quickly imprisoned again only after two years for assault and robbery. And in uh, March of 1912, he died of tuberculosis. So, real in and out. But well, that sucks. But yeah, like isn't that the most <laughs> in and out story? Doesn't even make that's sense. bananas. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I can definitely yeah. see why in you comparison, call that one yes. lighthearted. Well. We saved us home, an Nicole. awful one for the last. Uh, this one is titled The Santa Suit Slaughter. 
And this one could probably be a whole story as well, like a whole episode. So we're going to go back to Christmas Eve of 2004 and the small city of Covina just outside of Los Angeles. A few weeks prior, there's a man named Bruce Jeffrey Pardo whose divorce was finalized. I think it was finalized sometime around like the 17th or 18th. I didn't put it in the article. It's just a fun fact I remember. So at about 1130 on Christmas Eve, Bruce showed up at the home of his former in-laws where they were having a party. He was dressed in a Santa suit. And with him, he had a wagon that contained a gift wrap package that was actually a homemade flamethrower and two nine millimeter handguns. (laughs) A homemade flamethrower. He, yes, he also had two more handguns on his person. Very prepared for whatever was about to happen. Okay. Yes. So he rings the doorbell and his eight-year-old niece, Katrina, like where this is going. runs okay. to greet him. What does he do? He shot her in the face, making oh my God, what his first devil. victim of the evening. So silver lining, she did suffer severe Wait, injuries, but they were non-life-threatening. She survived so, being shot in the yeah. face? Wow. Good for mm-hmm. that little girl. He had to have hit her at like just the right oh angle, just the right spot, like... So I, w- I wanted to throw the silver lining in there now nope. <laughs> because I did when I read uh, that, yeah. I was like, oh, she, she obviously died. But no, then, then I saw later in the article, like, oh no, she suffered severe non-life-threatening injuries. I'm like, why wouldn't you follow with that? Uh, I guess they were Don't make me think a little girl died. Keeping a little cherry for the end of the story. Ugh, maybe. Well, of course, once this horrible shooting has taken place, other partygoers started to flee, and Bruce opened fire. Um, police speculate that he may have stood over and executed some of his victims, cool. like point blank range. Yeah. So after he was finished with his shootings, Bruce unwrapped his quote unquote gift and he used his homemade flamethrower to spray the house with high octane racing fuel and set the home on fire. One person, one survivor, did manage to escape the house and called 911 from a nearby neighbor's. It took 80 responding firefighters an hour and a half to extinguish the flames that were shooting 30 and 40 feet up into the air. Overall, nine people died and three were wounded. Uh, From the scene, police recovered the four handguns that I mentioned earlier. They all had been emptied, and there were at least wow. 200 okay. rounds of ammunition at the scene. Um, after Bruce committed his, this heinous act, he fled the scene and drove to his brother's house about 30 miles away. And just a little sidebar, brother was not home, okay. so it's not like it was a plan. Uh, Bruce's initial plan was to detonate a series of homemade explosives and then flee to Canada. He was driving a rental car and had rigged it with remnants of the Santa suit that would detonate the car with a black powder if removed. Police treated this as a threat and the bomb squad actually fired an incendiary device okay, so into it that burned and really destroyed smart. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I also read that when police went to his house to, like, search it for evidence and stuff, it was basically, wow, like, a giant bomb. Yeah. 
But Bruce could not follow through with his plan because the fire that he had started at his former in-laws had caused the Santa suit to melt onto his skin and gave him severe third-degree burns. Yeah, I'm into it. Yep, that's exactly what I said. Um, And instead of his Canada plan, which he had actually bought an airline ticket for, um, Bruce died by suicide via a self-inflicted so, gunshot wound. I'm to going the head. to speculate on this, and of course, if we look more into it, I'm sure there are, I guess, some some level of rationale. Let me say, there's some level of rationale of why he did all of this. Mm-hmm. Since, since it was his former in-laws, I'm going to go with it was a plot to get back with or back. Yeah, I guess he was going to attack back his ex-wife. At, yeah, it's it's. I feel like he had to have like this Christmas party was probably an annual thing that they did. And he knew she would be there. And he was just so like, but hurt at the fact that they got divorced. Maybe she had cheated on him. I don't know. I did not look into it. No matter what happened to you, you don't get to do that. Let's just start with shooting your niece in the face. You get to go straight to hell for that one. Oh, he is definitely rotting and burning in hell. Well, Nicole, thanks for that lighthearted story at the end. Oh my god. Ending it on a good note, right? Yeah. There's the other silver... Two silver linings. The little girl didn't die, but he did. But what a whirlwind. Twelve murders of Christmas for real. I mean, lots of murders, but twelve stories. Lots of... 12 crimes. Oh my God. The 12 okay. crimes of Christmas. Well, we, did it. we we sure did. That <laughs> that was fun. Sort well, of. it was fun to do something different and be able to like read a bunch of stories on a high level. Yeah. Yes, that was that that's true. But Very true. That's kind of everything we wanted to say, so should we just wrap it up? We should just wrap it up. Um if you're at home, yes, go wind down while you're doing and enjoy it. Make sure holiday. you're following us on Instagram at Masked Murder Podcast. And, you know, if you have any thoughts, ideas, questions, comments, funny memes, email us. Our email is maskedmurderpodcast at gmail.com. And overall, we just want to say holidays, happy new year, and we'll see you in 2021. Take care of yourselves. Sources for this week obviously include thoughtcatalog.com and crimeandinvestigation.co.uk, but also abc.net.au, bbc.com, bendigoadvertiser.com.au, murderpedia, transcrimesuk.com, and wikipedia.